Amen. Uh, well, you can have a seat. Uh, and good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I am our college pastor over at our Anderson campus. Uh, and it is always just a pleasure, uh, an honor for me to come and be with you here at Southwood. I, I was in youth ministry here for a few years back in the day. And man, it's just, it's always a joy for me to come back and, and to be with you. And especially as we're walking through this summer series, uh, looking at the legacies left behind by men and women in our scripture. We're looking at the lives of people uh, that either point us towards examples that we should follow, right, or, or sometimes their lives, legacies that are left that, that show us basically how not to live, how not to pursue uh, our own lives or, or kind of live out uh, our own priorities here and now. And so as we've been walking through this and hearing about the stories and the legacies left by different people, one of the things that I want us to realize this morning, uh, right at the get-go, is that, you know, all of us on some level are seeking to establish our own kingdom, uh, in other words, every single one of us kind of has these expectations, these ideas, these goals, and, and we're slowly but surely kind of amassing them and, and gathering them and creating them. And some of us are a little bit more uh, obvious than others. Thank you very much. I am President Kevin Ball of the Republic of Malaysia, a tiny self-declared country within Nevada. That's within the United States. We have everything that a nation should have, bank, stamps, and the post office. There is the Malasia Railroad. We have five human citizens and three canine citizens. Now, my neighbors don't mind too much, but having the country right up the street, I am responsible for just about everything that goes on in my country. We very much appreciate the United States for allowing Malasia to exist and not squashing us like a bug. I absolutely encourage everyone to start their own life. It can be an expression of creativity or you know, particular view of government. I have fun with it literally every single day. All right, everyone, get out of my country. Go on. If you're in the bathroom, get out. Man. Put that underneath the flag, right? If you're in the bathroom, get out. I love it. National motto. Man, every single one of us, again, maybe it's not quite so blatantly obvious that we're creating our own nation, but every single one of us, we have these ideas about that particular salary, that particular number we want to pay on a pay sub, or we have a particular grade that we want to make because we're still in school, or, or we have a particular thing that we want to buy, a particular uh, resource or a, a, a comfort that we want to gain for ourselves. We all have some sort of particular uh, l- lifestyle that we want to maintain, or kids that we want to raise or spouse that we want to find, right? We all have these goals and these ideas, these kind of blueprints for our own little kingdoms that we're building. Why? Because on some level, we all rightfully, justifiably value safety and security, right? There's something in us that wants to know what tomorrow's going to bring. There's something in us that wants to be prepared for whatever comes next. And man, that can be a good value. That's something to, to hold on to. It's, that's being diligent. That's being wise with our resources, with our time, with our energy. And yet we can find ourselves so focused on that value. We can find ourselves so, so laser focused on achieving those goals of, of, of creating what we view as the ultimate security, the ultimate stability, the ultimate satisfaction that we can completely miss the truth that God has given us, the promise that God has made that he ultimately will provide what we need. We will find ourselves dedicating our lives to, to, to chasing our own personal satisfaction. And in the end, what it is, is wasted effort. 
Because God is offering his people a better purpose to not build our own kingdoms, but instead to build his. So this morning, what we're doing is we're looking in Judges chapter 9. And we are studying, we're learning from the life of a man named Abimelech. And what we're going to see in his life is this example of what it means to foolishly dedicate our lives to building our own safe and secure kingdoms in this world. Rather than trusting God's provision and trusting God's purpose for our lives. See, in Judges chapter 9, verse 1, we see the the beginning of the legacy of Abimelech. See, Abimelech was the son of Jerubbaal. And Jerubbaal is not a name that maybe, you know, catches a lot of us, you know, not a lot of us know that uh, name, but this is actually another name for a man that many of us know by the name of Gideon. Uh, Gideon was a very successful judge in Israel, and he, he was successful in that he led Israel out of basically this horrific, oppressive existence. There was this enemy that was keeping him down. Gideon, through the power of the Lord, led Israel out of that into victory. He had these incredible military victories over their enemies. And so uh, when Gideon kind of is reaching the end of his life, uh, as he's had this amazing just life of, of success and victory, of trusting the Lord, towards the end of his life, he began to deviate. He, he had become so successful that the people of Israel came to him. They said, hey, we want you to be our king. We, we want you to be our ruler. And Gideon was like, nah, nah, nah. I'm not about that life. No, that's, that's all right. No, that's, that's not who I'm going to be. But even as he said that with his words and his actions, he let them treat him as a king. They started paying him taxes. They started giving him gifts. In fact, he named his son Abimelech. Abimelech in Hebrew, this is actually, it literally means my father is king. <laughs> right? So, so Gideon's like, no, 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 I'm not king. This is my son, though. His name is my dad is king. Uh, what? Oh, uh, I don't know. I'm like, that's, that's, that's what Gideon is leaving. That's the legacy he left. Unfortunately, it was, it was tarnished by the end of his life, these actions that, he's, that he took that we'll see play out here in a second. Because Abimelech, he went to Shechem to see his mother's relatives, and he said to them and to his mother's entire extended family, he says, tell the leaders of Shechem this, why would you want to have 70 men, all Jerubal's sons, ruling over you when you can have just one ruler? Recall, I am your flesh and blood. You see, Abimelech points out that Jerubal, that Gideon has had 70 other sons, right? And I don't, I don't know if you do a lot of math in the summer, but that's really not possible through one wife, right? That's, that's, you gotta, you gotta have some multiple, you get, you gotta get creative to do that. And that's the thing with Gideon, he took for himself many wives. In fact, Abimelech was the son of a concubine. He wasn't even the, the son of an official wife of Gideon. Gideon not only had all these wives, he also had these concubines, these, these prostitutes, these women that he brought in just to use as sexual objects for his own personal gratification. And so Gideon, who had started his life so powerfully, so, so faithfully, man, he ends his life in a horrific spot. And when it does, it sets up his son for failure. Because Abimelech is going to these people in Shechem, and he's basically trying to overthrow the law of the land. He's, he's promoting a rebellion. He says, look, there's these 70 men that have kind of divided the kingdom, that are kind of ruling as this council. He says, would you really want that? You really want that bureaucracy? You want all that red tape? He says, instead, wouldn't you rather just have one guy who just tells you what to do? Wouldn't you have one guy who knows you, right? Who's from, I'm, I'm your flesh and blood, right? This is, I'm one of you. I'm a man of the people. I wear the same color collar as you guys. 
says, don't you want to follow me instead? And his mother's relatives, they spoke on his behalf to all the leaders of Shechem. They reported his proposal. And sure enough, the leaders were drawn to Abimelech. And they said, he is our close relative. Right? They like what he's saying. They like the idea that he's presenting. The, the option that he's putting forth. It's like, yeah, you know what? He's got a point. Right? We don't want to wait on 70 guys to make decisions, to vote on stuff and abstain on stuff and write them letters and call their office and tell them our opinion. Right? They, they don't want that. It's like, we just want one dude who's got a good vision, who gets who we are and what we're about. I want that guy to rule us. And they say, yeah, he's our close relative. He understands who we are. Let's support him. And so sure enough, they paid him 70 silver shekels out of the temple of Baal Barith. And Abimelech then used the silver to hire some lawless, dangerous men as his followers. So Abimelech, right from the get-go, he goes, he's, he's promoting this rebellion. The people listen to him. They give him money out of the temple of Baal Barith. When he accepts this money, essentially what he's doing is he is abandoning Yahweh. He's abandoning the true God. Why? Because this is a temple to a false god. Right? This is a temple that is built to worship a false idol. Not the one true living God, not Yahweh. This is Baal Barith. And yet Gideon's like, yeah, I'll take that money. I, I have no problem with that. And not only does he take this, this dirty money, but he uses it to hire lawless, dangerous men. Literally in the Hebrew, it's, it's a word describing the men as empty, meaning that they have no redeeming characteristics. There, there's, no, there's no inherent value to who they are, to what they're about. I mean, these are empty, lawless, dangerous men. So this is the financial backing that Abimelech has. These are the people that he surrounds himself with. So already we're, we're kind of getting a glimpse of, man, maybe Abimelech is on uh, not the best path. And sure enough, in the very next verse, we see that he went to his father's home in Ophrah and he murdered his half-brothers, the 70 legitimate sons of Jerubbaal on one stone. Abimelech, right? Sometimes our kids have conflict with one another. At least... At least they're not Abimelech. You know, maybe that's, that should be the counter-argument of all of our kids at some point. When they push their sister, they'd be like, hey, I'm not Abimelech, right? I didn't go to the one stone, right? And murder 70 brothers. Now, he, what we, the reason that it tells us that it's on this one stone, it means that Abimelech didn't just sneak in with all of his gang, and they didn't just, like, kill these guys. There wasn't this, like, sneaky, like, backdoor kind of deal. They went in, and they publicly rounded up all of his half-brothers. And one by one, one at a time, they trot him out in front of everyone. And Abimelech kills him, puts him to death. One after the other, after the other, after the other. And in doing so, he basically clears his pathway, right? Clears his line to the throne. To that power, to that position, to that authority that he always wanted. And so as soon as he's performed this horrific act... All the leaders of Shechem, all the leaders of Beth Milo, they all assembled and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak near the pillar in Shechem. They took him to this place of honor, this place where authority is given to the rulers of that time. And they say, you're the guy. We choose you. Right? We want you to be the, 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 the one who leads us. <laughs> this guy who accepts right, 
dirty money, surrounds himself with horrific people and performs horrific acts. This is the guy that they've chosen to be their leader. Abimelech who was willing to do anything to take the power that he wanted, right? That's what we're seeing play out. We're seeing drive and determination. We're seeing someone who's saying, yeah, I'm going to be willing. I'm going to make that position. I'm going to make that goal so paramount. I'm going to make it so high on my priority list. It's such my complete focus that I'm willing to sacrifice anything and anyone that gets in my way. Right? That's what Abimelech is. He's the ultimate personification of this self-motivated ambition. Right? When we look in the history of, of America, man, there are a lot of ambitious people. And when we look in present-day America, there are a lot of ambitious people. And yet when America was being kind of driven through kind of these economic booms back in the uh, late 19th century, uh, what we see in the kind of this beginnings of the industrial age, we see this one company uh, that was run by a guy by an and by the name of Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie created this steel empire. He made everything out of steel. He did all this stuff to arrange steel. And he had this business partner with him the whole time by the name of Henry Clay Frick. All right, so Henry Clay Frick and Andrew Carnegie were kind of this one-two duo. And they created this huge steel empire that was so uh, successful because in the late 19th century, in 1892 specifically, uh, the world was basically figuring out that everything was better made out of steel. Suddenly everyone was figuring out like, wow, steel's amazing. Like we should make, we should use steel to make like our ships, our, our buildings, right? Our homes, our, our backpacks, like whatever. Like we got to make everything out of steel. It's, a, it's the miracle metal. And so suddenly Carnegie and, and Frick, they're selling all this steel. They, they've got all this power and, and ability to set prices. And man, the prices were just going up. The steel producers were making profit like crazy. And in 1892, the, the company or the factory that Henry Clay Frick oversaw there, they were, they were, there was a union of steel workers and their contract had come up. They were, had a time where they could renegotiate their, their payment, their benefits, that kind of thing. And so the, the union leaders sat across the table from, from Frick and they said, hey, we would like a reasonable raise, right? They asked for like a 15, 20% raise. They're like, hey, you know, profits are going through the roof. Like well, there's all the success, there's all this money. Uh, we should receive some of that. So Henry, here's their pitch. And he counter-offers a 22% pay cut. Right? He's like, how about I pay you less? And they're like, well, no. Like, that's the wrong way. So their counter-counter-offer was like, well, maybe we don't work for you. And, and Frick said, okay, I'm going to counter that counter. And I'm going to tell you, you're not allowed to work for me. And so he barricaded the factory. He set up these giant fences all around the factory installed literal sniper towers, like with people, like sniper towers around the factory. And he installed these cannons that would fire boiling liquid at people that weren't supposed to come in. Right? So Henry Clay Frick has now become a supervillain. Like he, he officially transformed. He's created his fortress of like terror and He's bringing in these temporary workers to fill the gap. And, and there's a siege. There literally was a siege that took place where, where all these former workers are like, no, like we should get in. We, want, we need jobs. We need money. This is unfair. And so they have this huge standoff. Somehow the workers got their own cannon because uh, you could just do that, I guess, in 1892. Steel. And so they, they showed up. 
And they, people were dying. Like there was, it was a horrific time where people were literally dying in the process of trying to get in. Henry Clay for keeping everybody out. And so one guy figured out, he's like, man, this whole deal is so, it's so messy. It's become such this huge issue. The real problem is Henry, right? He knew, it's like, I gotta, I gotta get rid of the Henry Clay Frick guy. And so he sneaks into the factory a few weeks into the siege. He sneaks into Henry's office and he busts open the door and it's just him and Henry. Right, so the man shows up. It's the perfect moment. And so he pulls out his gun. Henry's just sitting at his desk. Calm as can be. The man pulls out his gun and he shoots Henry in the neck. Twice. All right? With bullets, right? With bullets <laughs> in his neck. Henry stands up from his desk, walks across the room, tackles the man to the ground, and sits on him until the police show up. Because it's elite. You cannot shoot people in the neck. That is illegal, right? <laughs> Henry was shot. Again, bullets. Maybe steel bullets, right? In the neck. Twice. And maybe the beard like deflected it a little bit, right? I could have slowed him down. It's a good beard. But Henry was out of work. Barely, he was back at work within a week, right? He was out of work for less than a week for being shot in the neck twice. And when he comes back to work at the end of the week, he shows up, he fires 2,500 workers, and everyone else that's left, he gives them a 50% pay cut. Man, Henry Clay Frick. Fun fact, he was called by many publications at that time the most hated man in America. You're like, yeah, I get it, right? Right now, he's like the most hated man at Southwood. Like, justifiably so. But man, Henry Clay Frick was one of those people that just had his sights set on his goal. He had his ambition determined. He knew this is the power that I want. This is the position I want. This is the profit that I want at the bottom of the page. And he was willing to sacrifice anything and anyone that got in his way. He was so driven so determined that there was no cost too high. And what we see throughout history, what we can see even today is, man, that misguided determination, what it does is it leaves massive destruction in its wake. And we need to ask ourselves, look at our lives, examine ourselves, and really, and really ask, man, am I willing to sacrifice for these goals that I've set out? What am I willing to sacrifice? What am I willing to push aside for my own personal goals? For that paycheck, for that, that organization, for that position, for that career path. Man, who or what am I willing to just toss aside? Because they're just an obstacle between me and where I want to be. Do you see the people around you at work, in your home, in your friend groups, wherever? Do you see these people as obstacles between you and where you want to be? The tough, difficult people. Or do you see them as an opportunity to show the grace and the love, the peace, the forgiveness that God has shown us? See, we as a nation have been talking a lot lately about immigrant families. And, you know, there's a lot of nuance to that discussion that I completely recognize. But I think the question we have to ask ourselves is as believers, when we see people in a horrific place. When we see people in desperate need, where's our heart?
Where's our heart? Do we see them as obstacles towards, you know, using the resources we want to use and the way we want to use them towards, towards our own safety and security, towards the things that, that, that we want to create for ourselves? Do we see them as obstacles to that, towards that goal, or do we see them as opportunities to show the love and the grace that God has shown us? In the life of Abimelech, in the life of Henry Clay Frick, I mean, no, no cost was too high to pay to get to the position that they wanted to reach. All that drive, all the determination. Here's the thing. Where did it even get Abimelech in the long run? Well, in verse 25, what we realize is about three years after Abimelech takes power, the leaders of Shechem rebelled against him by putting bandits in the hills who robbed everyone who traveled by on the road. But Abimelech, he found out about it. And so he fought against that city all that day. And he captured the city and he killed all the people in it. And he leveled the city and he spread salt over it. Sure enough, three years after Abimelech takes power, he discovers the people who are disloyal to his brothers, oh, they're disloyal towards him. And he doesn't like it. And so he shows up and he kills everyone and he burns everything. And then just to kind of really put a stamp of destruction on it. He salts the earth, the symbolic act of showing, man, nothing's going to grow here. This is, this is a cursed land, right? Generally not what you look for in a leader, right? This was like a CEO of a company. You'd be like, I do not want to work for that company, right? He burns and salts stuff. Gross. Like that's not, that's not a good thing. But Abimelech, man, he was so driven. He was so, he was so determined to reach that position. What happened is that once he got there, he was bad at it, right? He was a horrible leader, but, but that didn't matter to him. He was willing to sacrifice anything to get there. And so therefore he was willing to sacrifice anything to hold on to it. You see, he was so driven to reach that position that he was just as driven to hold on to it, to clinch it in a, in a tight fist, right? He was willing to do anything, not just to reach the position, but to to hold on to it at all costs, right? He was misguided. He was blinded by that, by that focus. And so in that focus, in that, in that just kind of tunnel vision that he maintained, his view of everything and everyone around him, it became distorted, right? It distorted his view of the world of what was actually right and what was wrong. It distorted his view of reality. He didn't see himself as the horrible leader who needed to delegate responsibilities. Instead, he just saw people as an issue, as the problem, as an obstacle to be overcome. And so in that distortion, he made huge mistakes. You can't be a leader if you murder all of your followers. That's like 101, right? They teach that in May's business school. Like, don't murder all of your followers if you want to be a leader. You have no one left to lead. Abimelech's making these huge mistakes. Why? Because he has this misguided focus that's distorting his view. It's blinding him to what is actually true. And this can happen to all of us. (laughs) What does Y-E-S spell? Yes. What does E-Y-E-S spell? (laughs) Yes. What are you crying for? What are you doing? Okay, try again. What does Y-E-S spell? Yes. What does E-Y-E-S spell? E's. A-S. You're making me... Why do you breathe? Okay. E-Y. 
ES. ES. <laughs> Say it again. What does EYES spell? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what? It can get all of us. We can become so focused on something that, that maybe it's good, that maybe it's true, right? Y-E-S is yes. That is so true. And yet, if we become too focused, if we become too centered on that one idea, on that one pursuit, on that one goal, suddenly we make mistakes, right? We can be blinded. Things around it become distorted. And we find ourselves saying E-S, like fools, right? That's, that's where we find ourselves. We can commit ourselves to become so fixated on one thing that, right, it distorts our view of everything and everyone around us. We lose sight of the other truths that exist. See, we're in this every knee season. That's why we watched that video about it at the start of the service. We're in this every knee season as a church where where we're saying, man, we want to build more uh, churches. We want to create spaces for more people to worship. We want to plant churches in places that do not have them. We want to serve our neighbors and we want to serve the nations. We want to bring all people to that moment where, where they see that Christ is Lord, right? That's what every knee is all about. It's about bringing more people into worship over the, for the God of the universe. And, and yet, when we were going through the season, we were preparing for this season, my wife and I, man, we, we were struggling w- with what we were going to do to participate in every need. We, we were really talking about and considering and praying about, we we're like, man, what are we going to give? Like, how are we going to contribute? How are we going to commit ourselves to this vision? And, and we kind of landed on, on giving uh, differently on a, on a regular basis of giving out of some stored resources that we have. And right as we were kind of making that commitment, we were getting uh, lots of requests, as we do every year, uh, from students who are going overseas. We've sent about 60 students overseas this summer to, to various locations around the world to share the gospel with people who've never heard it before. And so we were, we, I always tell students, hey, you should send me a letter, like give me a call, set up an appointment. Like I, I want to support you in that endeavor, in that mission. And, and my wife and I, we have this kind of strategy. We have this, this motto, this, this behavior. We're like, okay, when we get those, when we get those requests, we're always going to say yes. We'll always say yes. And so we found ourselves giving in that capacity, giving in this to the every need. We found ourselves giving to, we already were supporting people in, in residency programs at other churches around the nation and people that were overseas with other sending organizations. And suddenly what we did is we found ourselves giving basically above and beyond what we'd ever given before. And, and, and that was a good thing, right? That was the thing we were like, oh, this is great, right? Like this is really, really awesome. Like we want to live generously. We want to live open-handed. And yet right as kind of all that was coming to a head right at the very end of the spring, uh, I started to just wake up in the night unable to sleep. And I found myself waking up and being just, 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 just anxious and fearful. And there, there wasn't like a specific thing that I could point to. It wasn't like a, a certain number. It wasn't a certain thing. Like we weren't, we weren't about to, you know, hit the streets. We weren't like abandoning our mortgage for the sake of giving. Like we were still living responsibly. And yet I, I realized that over the course of this week, as I'm waking up and I'm just distraught and I'm just fearful and, and I'm anxious, 
where I'd have to just distract myself. I'd have to go, I'd have to get up and go read or do something to turn my mind away from thinking about those futures. What I realized is that I had a, I had a pretty firm grasp on what I thought I, I needed to be doing with my finances. Again, not, not to live, not to survive. We still want to be discerning and wise. But there were certain lifestyle things that I didn't really want to give up that we had chosen to. There were certain actions, there were certain behaviors I didn't want to change that that we were saying, hey, these things are going to need to change. And even though I thought I was living generously up to that point, if you'd asked me weeks before that, if you said, hey, are you living generously? Are you giving? I'd be like, yes, absolutely. It's It's the best, right? No greater satisfaction than in living for the Lord, right? I would have said that. And yet, suddenly as some of those changes were taking place, suddenly as my grip was getting pried away, from some of that resource, from some of that money, man, I realized, wow, I had a line that I had drawn that I didn't quite know was there until we crossed it. And my gut was to just clamp down. Right? My instinct, my knee-jerk reaction was like, whoa, I can't let that go. And it was tarnishing my trust in the Lord. It was it was distorting my dependence on God's promises. It was breaking my beliefs that he's good and that he provides. Suddenly I found myself clamping down when God was lovingly directing me to let go. And we can all find ourselves in those moments. Man, with things that maybe we don't even know we're holding on to it in a closed fist until it starts to slip away. Or maybe some of us, we are very aware of what that thing is or that person is or that lifestyle is because we've been wrestling with it all week. But on some level, all of us have this struggle of, of putting our hope and our, our, our aspirations, our goals and things of this world that simply don't last. That's why the Lord wants to release our control on it. That's why he wants to pry our hands open because ultimately it's for our good to not put our hope in this world. We see that in the life of Abimelech where he's done all these things. He's made all these sacrifices. He's dedicated his life to reaching this position of power. He burns down the city of Shechem. And right after he does that, he's like, man, I'm on a roll, right? He's like, I murder all these people. I burn all this stuff. I have all this salt still in the wagon. I got to use it. And so he goes to another city that was rebellious towards him. He goes to Thebes. And he rolls up to Thebes. And when he approached the entrance of the tower, he's going to set it on fire, right? He's like, I'm the fire guy now, right? I'm Abimelech, the fire guy. I burned down Shechem, I burned down Thebes. And yet when he approached this tower, this kind of central stronghold where the, where the town had kind of gathered for safety, a woman threw an upper millstone down on his head and it shattered his skull. Not good, right? That's generally not healthy to have your skull shattered by a rock. Abimelech knew this, right? He's a planner. Right? He looks ahead. This guy, he, he's got like a very organized calendar. And so he quickly calls to the young man who carried his weapons. says, draw your sword and kill me so they will not say a woman killed him. Right? Again, he's a planner. He's thinking ahead. He's like, this isn't the legacy I want to leave behind. He says, I, I, I want to be the guy. I want to be a bim like the man who, who lived by the sword and died by the sword. Right? He's like, Set your, put your sword on fire first and then stab me. Like, that's what I want. 
I want this grand exit. I don't want to be known as the guy who got killed by a woman in this battle with a rock on his head. And this is what's beautiful about the life of Abimelech. He was, he's mentioned one other time in all of scripture, in 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel, Jonathan, there's this military commander, a guy named Jonathan. He's talking to his men, and they were, you know, kind of, they're going against this enemy. And some of his men got really close to the enemy in Cameron. They got really close to the enemy walls. And so Jonathan gets on to them. He says, hey, who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone down on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why'd you go so close to the wall? (laughs) So literally, the only thing that carries forward, attached to the name of Abimelech, he becomes the poster boy for don't go too close to the wall. Right? Like he's... He's on that poster in the DMV that's like, I went too close to the wall. Uh, you know, my head's shattered. Like, that's, that's who Bimelech becomes. <laughs> the people, moms tell their kids, like, don't get a Bimelech, right? Like, stay close. <laughs> Hold my hand. That's the legacy of Abimelech. He did everything and sacrificed anyone to get to that point of power, to get to that moment, to get to that position, to reach that goal. And it gets him nothing. Absolutely nothing. Man, that's the danger of building our kingdoms on this world. Right? That's the the downfall of anyone who dedicates their life to, to kind of amassing this little safe and secure kingdom on earth. It's that we'll do all this. We'll make all these sacrifices. We'll burn all those bridges. We'll, we'll frustrate all those people. We'll give all this time, all this energy, all this money to, man, that one little thing, and it just doesn't last. A week ago, a week ago, I I buried my final grandparent. My mom's mom passed away, and she was my last grandparent I had around, and and we buried her last Saturday. And there was this moment in in the process, in the ceremony, where uh, myself and the other pallbearers, we were kind of, we were marched over to the side and we were waiting for them to kind of finish up with her casket and we were going to carry it out. But uh, it was an open casket and, and we were seeing, as I was talking with one of my cousins, one of the other pallbearers, uh, the, the worker guys, they were like, they were huddled over the opening of the casket. And we were like, what is going on? Like, what, is this like time for like bearing Paul? Like, what do we do? Like, is this our moment? Like, do we need to step in, say something? And we noticed, though, what was happening is that they were, they were over the casket. And what they were doing, they were taking off all of her jewelry. They were collecting, like, the earrings and the bracelet and the watch. And they were putting them in a little pouch to give to, you know, a family member. They were taking anything that had value that was left on her body to just give it to one of her kids. And I'll tell you, that was a moment that I think is going to stick with me forever. Because it was just this beautifully, tragically poignant picture that you just can't take it with you. That there's going to be that day where I'm lying in that box, where my body is in that box, And someone's going to take off my watch and give it to my kid. 
We can put all this time, all this effort, all this energy, make every sacrifice to build what we think we need here and now. And it just doesn't last. So thank the Lord that he wants to save us from that futile pursuit. Thank God that he has given us a better purpose, a better kingdom to invest in. He says, man, a life pursuing your own kingdom. He says, that's, that's wasted potential. He says, but instead what you can do is you can live a life that's dedicated for me. He says, I sent my son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die and to rise again so that you could have a new mission, so you could have a new pursuit, so you could have a new hope, so that people could look at your life and see the way that you prioritize, see the way you spend your time, see the way you spend your money. And when they look at you, suddenly just the way you live can be a witness to who we are in Christ, to what we've been promised by the Lord. He says, man, that's the life that I want my people to live. If you have been adopted by God into his family, if you've been saved out of death and been brought into life, he says, I have something so much better for you than this world has to offer. And so, man, I, I would challenge us to think about, I mean, where is our hope? Right? What are we pursuing? Where are our goals? And, and when we think about this, man, it, it can be hard. It can be hard to see this play out on a daily basis. But I've found just for me, there's two ways that I kind of, I dedicate myself to this, to this goal, to this pursuit. One of them is, is modeled by Jesus Christ when he says, hey, you need to be praying for your daily bread. In other words, I, I found that for me, I need to have some moment every single day where I come before the Lord and say, God, I want to surrender today to you. I want to surrender the, the meetings that I have, the people I'm going to interact with, God, the kids that I'm raising, the wife that I'm trying to love. God, I want to give these things to you. Every single day, I need that moment. Some people need to write it down. Some people need to speak it aloud. But every day you come before the Lord, you say, God, I want to give these things to you. I want to open my hand and surrender. Not only for ourselves personally, right? So that's the thing to do daily. But what I've also found for myself is to regularly, daily, come before the Lord and say, God, I want you to show me where can I participate in your provision, right? Not just, God, how can I trust in your provision, but God, how can I be a part of your work to provide for other people? Because that's what's beautiful about the Lord is he doesn't just provide miraculously for his children. He does, but that's not the only way he works. He will also work through other people to provide the, the financial support, the meal, the comfort, the, the words of encouragement. He works through people to provide that, to, to meet the needs of others. And so I need to go before the Lord. I say, God, show me Open my eyes so that I see the opportunities around me. I mean, I'll I'll tell you, this is an incredible opportunity. And and it's an opportunity not just to kind of forge this new path. It's an opportunity to follow in the steps of Jesus Christ. See, this morning we're taking communion. And and as the men go back to prepare uh, communion for us, I mean, I'll tell you, this is an incredible moment. This is an incredible, wonderful illustration. Communion is this incredible opportunity to essentially come back to this foundational truth of recognizing, hey, Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live the life that we could not live, the perfect life. And yet he died the death that we deserved because of our sin, because of our failure. And then three days later, he rose from the dead 
to prove his power over sin, to prove his power over death, to show that anyone who believes in him, who called on his name, can be united with him for all of eternity in that glorious life. So when we take communion, it's an opportunity for us to remember, man, God has already provided for our greatest need to be with him forever, to reconcile us to himself in relationship. So as the men come forward and begin to distribute, I would just encourage you to take this time right now to think about, to pray to God, say, God, show me, where's my hope? God, where am I pursuing my own kingdom over your own? Take this time and pray those things. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a a church and he's telling them about this beautiful illustration that we have in the Lord's Supper and taking communion. Essentially this opportunity to remember what Christ has done, what he's accomplished on our behalf. Not as a mystical, salvific moment, but instead as just a a regular reminder of who we are in Christ. So as he writes to the church in Corinth, he says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. So do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread, every time you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the way we want to end the service is to essentially proclaim that truth, to declare to the Lord that we trust him, that we believe in the death of Jesus Christ, that we're grateful for what he's provided and what he will continue to provide.